you know, we're not here just to bash others and to bash the church and to bash, you know, whatever our own experiences. No, we're here to learn from them. And we're also here to make it better and model what Christ has modeled for us, which is hope. And how can we like really lean into that, even when it's really hard? And yeah, we cuss a little bit, you know, sometimes <laughs> that's, that's how we get there. We, we got to work it out out loud. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast. Matt and I had the privilege of talking today with Dr. Alma Zaragoza-Petty, and it was a wonderful conversation. Before we jump into all that, though, I do want to give a slight trigger warning. At some point during the interview, there was a mention of suicide as we discussed mental health issues. So for those for whom that might be activating for you, we just want you to know that that will come up during the interview. Having said that, Matt, I'm wondering, as you listened to Alma as we spoke and, and evaluated the conversation, what have you noticed that has come up in our work or in your work as the Northeast director or the education director that relates to this topic? Yeah, one of the things that I've seen a good bit, I was not familiar with the topic or the subject of trauma-informed care, and it's something that maybe I only heard about 18 months ago, and that definitely comes up today, and it's come up with congregations with whom we've worked, especially those that want to work with their communities, maybe those who want to work with inner-city populations and the homeless or people who, who don't necessarily have a lot of means in understanding trauma-informed care. And essentially the idea behind that is you have to understand that people come from traumatic situations and it informs their personality, it informs how they see the world. And I think it's just such a rich subject and something that's so important for congregational leaders to understand because we can't assume that the audience to whom we're speaking is uniform, that they've had the same background, past experiences, education, et cetera. And regardless of that, you know, trauma cuts across all socioeconomic statuses. It cuts across all ethnic backgrounds. And so just being aware of that as we try to lead our communities and understanding that there are people who have been deeply, deeply scarred by aspects of life and just making sure that we're paying attention to that as an aspect of what it means to be human. Absolutely. It seems like I have to mention every single podcast episode now with this lingering pandemic, some of these issues have been exacerbated, you know, and so as communities are wrestling with what it means not to meet in person or to not be able to meet with as large of a, a group as they normally meet, or they can only meet in person infrequently. The question of what does it mean to create community in which people can bring their whole selves seems a bit more pertinent in some ways. And as I thought about this topic, Matt, I thought about a lot of our EYA congregations the congregations that are thinking about what it means to engage youth and young adults 
I think something like this would be very pertinent to them, you know, because engaging with teenagers can already feel like you are speaking a different language or that they're living in a different world than you are, depending upon the context that you come from. But when you add in the prospect that the teenagers and the youth that you're engaging with may have experienced trauma or maybe in the midst of trauma, that can make relating sometimes even more difficult. And so as we were talking today, I thought about those congregations and how useful some of this might be for them as they're trying to craft spaces that feel welcoming for all age demographics. Yeah, and I want to make an observation about this idea, because I feel like in some of the reading that I've done and interacting with different congregational leaders of different age demographics, I really feel like there's a major shift that has happened in how we view leadership. And what I mean by that is that I think, and this is a hypothesis, but it seems that boomer generation and older Xers had an expectation that their leaders were bulletproof that they didn't really struggle with life as much as the people they were leading. And this was true in congregations as well as business as well. In my time in the business world, I saw the same kind of thing, that leaders don't share weakness. But I'm seeing among younger generations a distrust if you have a leader that isn't forthcoming about struggles in their life. There's almost a sense that you're not telling me the whole story because I know better. I know we all struggle and I know that we all have problems. And so I just want to encourage anyone listening that I really feel like younger generations are looking for more transparent leadership, and they don't want you to be perfect anymore. They're not looking for you to not have any struggles or problems, because in doing so, I think at least now in our current culture, it models that if you have problems, then there's something wrong with you, and you need to figure yourself out, as opposed to being embraced for who you genuinely are. Right. And as someone, you know, I'm not a young person anymore, but still a millennial, you know, I can say that when I see leaders that are willing to name the things they struggle with and wrestle with, it reminds me that they're human and then makes them more trustworthy. And so I not only want to kind of follow them and listen to them, but I'm also more likely to want to engage with them and share some of what I am going with and the road that I'm walking on. Whereas if people don't ever name what's going on in their lives or don't ever name their prickly sides or, as Alma said, brokenness, I'm less likely to trust them. And I think that's probably true for most folks in my generation. Yeah, so I just encourage you as you listen to the interview and as you listen to us talk about the resources at the end of today, just be open to thinking about those things in a bit of a different way and being able to grapple and wrestle with those parts of yourself that maybe we typically keep hidden. Yeah, well said, Matt. Well said. So, uh, you know, I finally get to say this. Without further ado, here's the interview with Alma. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I am joined today by our Northeast and Education Director, Matt Burke. Hey, Matt. Hey, everybody. And our wonderful guest, Dr. Alma Zaragoza-Petty, who is a higher ed practitioner, a co-podcaster, and the co-founder of the Prickly Pear Collective. Alma, it's so great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to get to know y'all, talk to y'all, and share about what I've been doing. 
We're excited to. Uh, and for those that don't know me, I am Ben Tapper, an associate for resource consulting out of the Indianapolis office for the Center for Congregations. So with that being said, let's just jump right in. You all have recently launched a podcast at the Prickly Pear Collective. And in the first episode of the season, you do some background information on what the collective is, what you want to do. And the emphasis is this intersection of faith, trauma, and therapy. And so I'm wondering if you can just talk about the collective so our listeners know what it is. And then can you just explain why it's important to explore that intersection of faith, trauma, and therapy? Yeah. So... Like you said, in the first episode, we kind of break down exactly how we came about. We felt that there was just a lot of gearing up to it or leading up to it that kind of happened internally in like our own hearts as we came together to create the Prickly Pear Collective and our own experiences. And basically what we really wanted to do is have a space where we felt like as believers, as people of faith, we would have loved to have been able to express our full selves in church. And we had all experienced a muting down or like a numbing down of our who we were in those spaces for different reasons, you know, but we also felt that there was like a missed opportunity there. I think that I really am super adamant about just healthy, mature church leadership because of how much damage can be done when it isn't so. That's kind of what even started like the passion for that, just wanting myself to be like a healthy, mature, emotionally like leader in my own work. And so that's kind of what gave birth to it. It was just like this wanting this alternative space where these things can coexist. And I felt like, well, you know, like this is kind of what I've been good at with, even with my partner and the work that we do together. It's just creating this alternative space that just needs to happen where we can have honest conversations. And so the collective itself is designed to host and foster those spaces. How does that generally happen? Yeah. So before we even started podcasting, we had been hosting meetups here locally in Los Angeles, and we would kind of tackle like a topic. Our end goal is always to point back to like healing and hope and restoration. And so we would start off topics of like what it means to have inner healing. Like, what is that? What is it to have boundaries? You know, a lot of folks, even as mature adults, you know, they sometimes they skip that message or they, they skip that like, <laughs> learning that. And I just met so many like that. And I was just like, including myself, you know, I'm including myself in that. And I just thought like, wow, we really need to like, as people of faith, are we really need to start centering those conversations as well. It's not like we're devoid of having these pitfalls or these character flaws. And of course, there's everything with grace, but I don't think that it's even biblical to ignore those things. And so that's definitely what felt like we wanted to kind of really do and, and model in our space. And so we started doing the meetups. We realized folks were just, because of our own stories and our own modeling and sharing our own backgrounds, folks started coming to us with like heavy heavy stuff. And we just realized like, wow, there's really a need here for this, for wanting to talk more openly in community with others to be able to to carry each other's burdens in this way. And it's hard because as I was going through my own healing, having to carry the burdens of others, it was like this constant, like, all right, don't fall into the pit of despair, Alma. You know, Mm. (laughs) it was like this, this balance that needs to happen too. Yeah, I'm really curious because what you're describing sounds a lot like what we think church ought to be. And it's interesting that you're finding so much resonance with people who are interested in faith, but this is a new thing for them to be able to bring their whole selves. And I think for our audience, a lot of people that listen to this are congregational leaders or or people who are pastors or clergy leaders. What have we missed 
where we've created the need for some kind of alternative community like this outside of the congregation? Yeah, that's a really great question. I wish I, you know, can solve the problem right now uh, <laughs> because it's definitely something that created even this work for us. I think part of it is there's this like expectation that church is where we go once we have it all together. I know even as a believer kind of later in my life, I've been a believer for about 11, 12 years now. And so I became a believer right before I went into graduate school and I remember during that time, I was like, yeah, you know, I really want to go into this church, but like, I'm pretty broken. Like, I don't think I can go in there. I think I'm pretty sure this is, I'm not who they're trying to hang out with, you know? And of course that was because of my own issues and trying to understand who I was and just in the world and, you know, all, all of that existential kinds of questions that we start to ask ourselves when we become believers, when we weren't, you know, as children, I guess, part of that culture, which might look a little different. But as I thought about that, I realized I wasn't the only person that thought that way. You know, a lot of folks, even within our churches, I remember there being cliques. There was like the people that tend to have similar likes, dislikes, and tend to kind of echo each other and live in that comfortable space of just coexisting with one another. And I've always been kind of an outcast. And I think that's something that Julia and Valerie, my co-founders, like have also experienced that. And so we've always felt like, man, where's the outcast group? You know, like we wanted to find <laughs> that group, but usually we're the awkward ones too. We're not talking to anyone. <laughs> we're not really getting to know others. And so we just needed a lot of healing. And so anyway, I think part of it is that part of it is just the cliquish nature that can often happen around socioeconomic status, around race, around lived experience and churches and how, because it is replicated in every other segment of society, it's not like it's any different in the church, right? Like, unless there's an active and purposeful breaking down of that, it's not going to just, well, we all love Jesus, so let's just be with different people in here. You know, that's not what happens. And so I think that's definitely like one of the biggest things that creates this of kind of space in churches and congregations and that's the main one, I would say. Other things is having lived very different experiences. You know, I have gone through a lot of trauma. And so I didn't realize this until a few years ago. I had been living with PTSD. And for a long time, I just thought that was just my, like my identity. It was like how I just related to the world. And, and I needed to do a lot of unpacking. And unfortunately, that didn't come in the church because I don't know that I ever felt like there was someone like me in church. It always felt like it's where you go to put your best foot forward. And so therefore, because everyone's on their best behavior and not cussing and not being comfortable like they are at home, <laughs> then it just made it seem like, oh, okay, it's me. Like all these people have it together. And also an unhealthy understanding of what community is, you know, like I thought that was community going to church on Sunday and then I realized like, oh no, this is just a very small part of who I am as a believer. And I don't know that a lot of folks realize that Sunday church is very different and it all can also be very different, you know, space. And unfortunately, I think right now it's just kind of seen as like this place where we just go do this whole like liturgy about our, the way that we run church and then we kind of dip out and it's kind of uncomfortable to ask someone how they're really doing because you don't know if it's going to become waterworks or if it's going to become like you being uncomfortable, not knowing how to respond. 
And so there's just this weird tension in like physical churches that was happening before. Of course, all of that has been like blown out of the water now that we're not doing it that way. (laughs) And I think a lot of people are also creating these new spaces, this more authentic, this more real spaces, because we've kind of been socially allowed to say like, yeah, we're not okay. We're, we're in a pandemic, you know? And so I think it's allowed us to be able to, to share even more. At least that's what we've seen in our meetups that we are continuing virtually as we still hear folks, you know, just not giving an F about just, <laughs> and just saying how they're actually doing and how they were actually, it was really hard to even get up and join the meetup and, you know, just being really real and authentic with us. Does that F stand for for faith for fire? Just, <laughs> just for the show notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we cuss a little bit. Cuss. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You know, I came out of a background similar to what you're describing. I think, and one of the fears potentially of people hearing about spaces like that and being your full self and bringing your full self to it, there might be some fear that you're making allowance for bad behavior or maybe things that we shouldn't be giving voice to. But what have you seen as a result of that in this community as you've seen people be their real selves and even bringing their authentic way of speaking or their authentic issues or challenges? What are some of the positive outcomes that you've seen that critics who would voice that might be able to rethink about that kind of environment? Yeah, that's a great point. I I definitely feel like even in our second recording of our podcast where we're talking about what is church and that's going to come out in a few weeks, we had to go back and actually like talk more about it because we realized we were sounding like we were just met at the church and we were kind of just leaving it there. And we were like, that's not our mission. Our mission is to always end with hope and to always end with healing. And so when you're very clear about what your mission is and you're operating from a place of true like vocation calling, I think that what happens is you're able to translate that to people. And so in our meetups, in our conversations with folks, we're always really clear that as much as we have had issues within the church, we want to find solutions. It's not about just creating a space of whining about this partner that we have, you know, and it's very similarly modeled to how support groups work. So I don't know, Matt, if you've been involved in any of those, but usually in support groups like women or gender-based support groups, sometimes there's like this rule and expectation that like, we're not coming here to air out the dirty laundry of our partners and be like, yeah, can you believe this dude? Like, you know, he's acting like this or whatever. That's not what we're doing. We're not coming in there and being like, I can't believe this, you know, whatever. It's more about sharing where we are. And we make it very clear, like, you don't have to share. This is not a space where you must talk If, for instance, you don't feel like you're in a place where you can talk yet, you know, working with folks that have gone through trauma, that is often the case. They can't talk sometimes about some of the stuff that they've gone through. It's too painful and it just brings up too much. And it would, uh, you know, it would require a lot of the group to just be there with that person. Not that it can't happen. You know, we've also had people that have taken that step. Like, for example, one time we were talking about sexual abuse and I was giving an example from my own life of how I was able to overcome the shame and the, you know, just all the things that came with that. And in that group, one of the people there also shared for the first time, and she even prefaced it and said, Hey, this is the first time I'm even saying this out loud, but I think I went through that. I think I had some kind of a experience like that. I didn't realize that that was even like abuse. Like I just, it, it has been so much a part of who I am that I just thought there was something wrong with me this whole time. And that I didn't, I just didn't know who I was. And it was kind of overshadowing who I was, my identity. 
you know, and so we stopped and, and acknowledged that and encouraged that person, you know, thank that person for their courage. Cause speaking up like that about such a, a sensitive topic is so hard already. Right. And now you're doing it in front of these people, the meetups, it's not like it's the same people, right. It's like different people. And so I think setting the expectations early on, knowing that, you know, we're not here just to bash others and to bash the church and to bash, you know, whatever our own experiences. No, we're here to learn from them. And we're also here to make it better and model what Christ has modeled for us, which is hope. And how can we like really lean into that, even when it's really hard? And yeah, we cuss a little bit, you know, sometimes <laughs> that's, that's how we get there. We, we got to work it out out loud. And, and if it's been in our minds in that way, it's hard to censor it and still feel true to ourselves. And so it happens a little bit, but that's not where it ends. And it doesn't become the like, well, the Bible says, you know, whatever, like some division about whether you should cuss or not. It's about the actual issue that is being brought up. Yeah. Setting up expectations has been crucial. Modeling those expectations sharing how broken we are as people, I think as a leader, like, I think it's really important. And that's something that I also wish to see more from the pulpit as a modeling and a acknowledgement, not that you have to air your, you know, your deepest secrets up there, but just modeling some of the brokenness. I think it's important to know that, oh yeah, we're all just kind of trying to figure it out here. We're all living by faith and no one has to be fully together before they can become believers, you know? I mean, to your point, modeling can look like what you just did, right? What you named, yeah, I've got PTSD, right? And I'm also a whole person and still trying to do this work, you know? So even something as simple as just naming that, which as someone with PTSD, I really appreciated you just putting that out there. Because I think a lot of times when we're in, whether it be work or our congregations or with our families, it can be hard to feel like we can bring the prickly sides of ourselves into those spaces, right? And so when we can just become more comfortable naming something about ourselves, I think that gives us the freedom to recognize, yeah, this is true, but it doesn't define all of me, right? And I can then see you and say, yeah, that's true about you and it doesn't define all of you. So let's relate as whole people. And I think that's a beautiful way to be in relationship. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's not a either or when it comes to some of these things. And I unfortunately, I feel like a lot of people are living with an either or about their identity in Christ and their, you know, their experiences and their therapy and what they need to work through in their own identities. As you, you know, have gone through the rigorous study that it takes to get a PhD and as you have lived out and worked through your own trauma, your own brokenness, I'm wondering what you have learned about your faith along the way while doing this work, you know, because there's a lot of, I won't say a lot, but there are folks, especially in certain segments of our population for whom faith and therapy can seem kind of antagonistic, right? The focus on psychology can seem like it undercuts your spiritual journey. And yet there are many others who say, no, it actually helps my spiritual journey. So can you talk about how this work, this journey of yours has helped your faith or you've seen it help the faith of others? Yeah. I mean, I think I am probably like a miracle then because my major was psychology. Uh, <laughs> um, and I have a master's in counseling, so more, more psychology. Um, and then I went on to get a PhD in educational policy and kind of like a sociological way of looking at education, basically. Mm -hmm. But I, I would say that, I mean, I don't know that I would even be a believer if I hadn't taken that path. So it's just kind of hard to think about it from the other perspective of like, how am I able to stay a believer or how can these things coexist within me? Because I've not known an alternative, right? Mm -hmm. 
But I also do believe that sometimes just like we hyper spiritualize things, we can also like hyper therapize too much, like, like overdo it or psychoanalyze, I guess it's the right word, like overanalyze things. And there's definitely a danger in doing both. Mm-hmm. And I, if anything, I think that psychology has taught me also to not hyper spiritualize things. For instance, like going through a depression bout, one might literally start to hear a different part of who they are in the thoughts that they're saying to themselves. They've never met before. If you've never had depression, Mm -hmm. where you're just like, whoa, why am I thinking these crazy dark thoughts? Like I've never thought like that. I guess it must be true. Like, I guess I really don't belong here. I should just, you know, whatever kinds of things might be coming up. If there are like suicidal thoughts happening and you've never had them, I have heard of stories where people were told, well, you know, you're, there must be like sin in your life that you're not, that there's a demon in your head right now talking to you like that, or you must be hearing voices, like almost making it worse, you know, like when really that person just needs to get some therapy and probably some pills for a little bit until they kind of start to work through what is causing this depression, the severe depression. And so if anything, I feel like I've been able to kind of learn from both the psychological therapeutic world and use that to kind of differentiate when there is an oppression of the spirit, when there is actually spiritually something happening that I'm just like, whoa, this is different. This is not, you know, these dark thoughts. This is almost like God wanting to speak to me into this season and into this life moment and being able to kind of know what's the difference. Of course, I'm super biased because I know you know, like I started off saying, I'm very definitely like steeped into this world. And so it's really hard to not see how they actually work to help each other out and not to cause like disbelief or to cause, I don't know what the alternative of that would be, just hyper-spiritualizing, I guess. Yeah, I appreciate the integration of those two things. And I think for our listeners, remembering that you have people in your congregation that are gifted and skilled at so many different disciplines and finding ways to learn from them as you lead or finding ways to get them involved in leadership or even just educating your congregation in some way, because it can be rare to integrate so well different disciplines into spirituality and the life of faith. But I think the life of faith is somewhat impoverished when you don't allow people to bring their whole selves, their whole knowledge base, their practices and expertise with them. Yeah, absolutely. You have this phrase on, I think, the Instagram page, maybe, where you you name yourselves, the prickly pair, that is, names themselves as trauma-informed. And I'm wondering if you can just say more about that phrase and what it might mean in the context of a congregation. Like, how can a congregation be trauma-informed or how can a leader be more trauma-informed? Yeah, that's a great question. For us, being trauma-informed means taking into account not only the social context, but also the communal context and the familial context of a person. So what that means really is that you are acknowledging that, yes, we are indiv- you know, our own people, individuals made in the image of God, but we're also a reflection of the systems around us. We are also a part of the systems around us. And even if we wanted to, we can't escape them. Like we can't just choose not to be part of capitalism anymore because we would no longer have a home. We'd have to pay bills. We have to have a job to take care of ourselves in this world, you know? And so trauma-informed really just means to us having a contextual understanding of a person, like understanding that they're coming in as dynamic, multifaceted, just like God, 
people. They're not just a Latina. You know, a lot of people might see me, they're like, oh, she's a Latina, you know, or not just a wife, you know, their sister, mother, comadre, you know, whatever. There's so many roles and identities that we hold. And I think that trauma-informed means allowing all of those things to coexist and to really integrate into wholeness within individuals. And that might be a little different than other organizations working with different populations might mean it. But I think that for us working in the faith-based sphere, it's really about reclaiming wholeness and integration of folks that have been either not felt comfortable in those spaces because of their people of color, not felt comfortable in those spaces because of their own familial backgrounds, not felt comfortable because they don't know a loving community. They don't know what that means. So it's different when you come into a church and you're expected to be in a loving community. It's hard if you've never been modeled that. And so we want to make sure that we allow folks to come in with all of those different facets of who they are. You said something that I have never thought before, and it just stood out to me. And it was this idea of kind of understanding the context that people come from and how they're multifaceted, just like God. Mm-hmm. And I I just, I don't know, it, it brings a smile to my face. I love that image. And for those for whom it's part of their tradition to understand humans to be created or made in the image of God, whatever that means for you. To also understand that just as multifaceted as one might imagine the divine to be, well, we get to be multifaceted too. And that's that's just so rich. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I find hope in that too. And that's kind of what grounds me whenever there's like different issues that come up in my own healing and things like that. It's like, I can be both. I can be kind of pissy right now. (laughs) And I can also be (laughs) wanting to be kind and to extend kindness to others. I can try to do that. Yeah, there's a lot of freedom in allowing ourselves to come in as multifaceted people and to reclaim that if it has been stripped from us. Yeah, that's definitely a beautiful image. So presumably a lot of the people who are involved in the Prickly Pear Collective are potentially involved in faith communities as well, where they don't feel like they can bring their whole selves into that faith community. What do you wish the leaders of those faith communities knew or did differently if they really understood and wanted to address the needs of the people that you interact with? Yeah. I mean, we have so many different reasons why some folks are unchurched and that come to our group and also folks that are in a church, but just feel like they don't have that community as well. So it's, there's kind of like a big range of folks and we are pretty open about allowing folks who are also just questioning, you know, like they're not really sure and they don't feel comfortable necessarily having these conversations in their churches and bringing up all those things. And honestly, like there's so much in there. There's so much like why they don't feel they can bring it to a leader, you know, like what in their own lives happened where they don't feel safe Mm -hmm. to bring it to an authority figure. I mean, that alone, you know, we can spend good half an hour on. There's the reason why an authority figure like a leader can't reach out to the most hurt and to the most silent in their congregation, but only ends up talking to the ones that end up rushing them or wanting to talk to them and seeking them, but doesn't create the space for those that aren't, you know, why they miss those people. A lot of that might have to do with just bandwidth, you know, like as something as simple as bandwidth. And because we run our churches have become a kind of an organization and the way that we run them and how big they are, 
are we really being the kind of church that we are called to be when we have a lot of people that we're leading? I personally think that that's really hard. The biggest segment of our population that comes, they tend to be from mega churches and just not feeling like there's that space to have a much deeper, intimate leading and discipleship in their lives. And so they are wanting that. Those are probably like the top three things that I can think of off the top of my head. And the other thing is, which I kind of opened with before was just the maturity, right? Like the emotional and spiritual maturity of a leader and where they are means that by default, they will only be able to meet certain folks and where they're at as well. For instance, if I had a hard time maybe like defining like my own like achievement, what makes me special is my achievement only. And if I don't achieve, then I don't feel like I'm worthy or whatever. If we have pastors who are are in that kind of a mind frame and are going basically through their own psychological, emotional, spiritual battles, it's really hard to be there for others when you're needing to be tended to, like you need care, you know, and you need soul care and pastors. I think, you know, I have a few friends that are pastors and it's so easy for pastors and priests to like burn out and to just not know how to balance the call and vocation that they're called to. And also the replenishment of their own like souls and spirits to be able to continue that work. That's such a great point that even heard it said in the business world, an organization is only as healthy as its leadership. Mm. And so highlighting the need for leaders to be healthy and that will help them create spaces and environments where they can allow other people to be healthy. So as we come to closing out on a couple of last questions, you said that you like to end on hope and you like to end on positive things. So what hope can you give to listeners of this podcast about those that you work with, trauma-informed care, self-care, just whatever aspects of what we've talked about? What hope do you see as we move forward? Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the most hopeful things that I see in a community where we're able to really integrate all of who we are and be able to come with all of the parts, even our prickly ones, is this work towards replicating eternity on this side of life and not waiting till death to feel whole, to feel that type of deep love and longing or feeling of belonging that we carry with us. We, you know, that's been placed in our hearts to want, right, from others and from the divine. And and something that really brings me hope is when I start to see how really the extension of God and someone else in the way that they are becoming fuller and richer and much more healthier beings and just how much more they are able to reflect God to me. And I learned from them in those instances, learn about myself, learn about loving someone better, learn about being able to be with someone comfort and then seeing fruit of that and what that creates. We actually had in one of our meetups, we were like, why? Like, why would we do this? Like, this isn't fun. It's not fun to like, (laughs) to like get healed when there's like all this trauma and all these like emotional baggage and issues and ish that we have. (laughs) Like, why why would we do it? Like, you know, and so we actually had a meetup where we talked about the rewards of that, the spiritual rewards of growth, because that's truly what it is. The spiritual rewards of spiritual growth, of emotional growth. And the way that our character starts to develop to really reflect a more divine image. I just want to second that healing is not fun. Uh, however, <laughs> it is worth it. Yeah. I want a, I want a therapist to dig up all the stuff that I'm not aware of, said no one ever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I've been getting so mad at my therapist sometimes. 
Yeah. <laughs> so as we conclude, you know, folks that want to learn more can obviously check out the Prickly Pear Collective on Instagram. They can check out the podcast. But what other resources would you point leaders towards that really want to understand what it means to create and foster a trauma-informed faith-based community? Wow, that's awesome. That's a great question. One of the things that I would start with if you are a leader is becoming more aware, self-aware yourself. Like I think as you start to grow and question and dig deeper into your own life, your own way of interacting, if it's all felt like automatic and this is just the way you are, it's not, you know, like that's just, (laughs) that's literally you just replicating whatever was passed down to you. And so Becoming more curious, becoming more aware of yourself, of your own autopilot kinds of ways of things that you do, I think is going to start to really bring out a questioning of things and start to lead you into a path of growth and finding what you might need in the season. As far as like actual resources, there's probably a lot of books out there on learning a lot about codependency. If you're a human that has interacted with others is going to be important. Mm. codependency is probably like the root of like a lot of psychological stuff and mannerisms and things that we kind of do on autopilot. And that's one way that you start to gain more awareness, you know, and I'm not saying that everyone's codependent. I'm just saying that today there's no one perfect in this world. And so everyone has something that they can learn from. And I think that that's a great place to start is to learn about how your own family dealt with things and how you might be replicating some hurtful and damaging ways of being and and how you can change that because there's always room for death of those things and resurrection from those things. Yeah. And for those that want to follow you more directly, how can they get a hold of you and keep in touch with what you're doing? Yeah. So you can check out our at Prickly Pear Collective IG handle. My IG handle is the doc ZP and I always repost things. I just remembered this other resource, Latinx, um, parenting, parenting. Yes. yes. I love them. They're, love they're amazing. Yeah, I know the founder. She's dope. That's so cool. Yeah. They do a lot of work around helping folks become more aware. And even though there's the Latinx kind of identity signaling in there, they bring up a lot of different folks. They are constantly kind of sharing resources on there. But if you definitely have some trauma in your life and you're like in that healing kind of process, they're a great resource. The Body Keeps the Score, which is a great book if you've gone through some trauma and understanding how people feel when they've gone through trauma. It's an amazing, amazing book. Let's see. Emotional Sobriety. Our thoughts and our emotions are not who we are. And I think that oftentimes because we've lived with those for all of our lives, probably longer than we've been Christians. Like we believe that they are who we are and they're not. We can actually have a healthier relationship with our thoughts and emotions. And I think that everyone can grow in that. Mm. But yeah, those are probably the top ones that I would recommend in terms of like actual resources. So we also have a meetup every Saturday for the rest of this year. I believe it's every third Saturday from two to four PST. And we have people joining from all over the country and other countries as well. So everyone is welcome. We are operating from like as a big kind of group right now, like a big support group. And then 
if we end up having too many, I think we're going to start doing like breakout rooms or something. We, we haven't gotten there yet. So, <laughs> so we're not, we're, we want to keep it as one group as long as possible, though. We really feel like there's a lot to learn from hearing one another and from understanding one another. And yeah, those are the main ways that you can get a hold of us. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ama, for being here, just sharing your insight, your spirit, your energy. It's very refreshing. And so I'm sure Matt and I were blessed and I know our listeners really appreciated the content that you shared today. And so we just want to thank you so much for being here and taking the time. Thanks for having me. And I guess I kind of have a last minute thing I wanted to add as rote and cliche as it always sounds. And as much as I'm like, I don't really want to say that word. You're not alone. Just like knowing that you're not I feel like there has been so much sucked out of that saying (laughs) because of the overuse of it. But really, like, there's so much richness in understanding that, that you're not. And not only in a physical level with like other human beings, but also in a spiritual level. And so, yeah, find your community. If it's not us, you know, don't do healing alone. It gets really hard. Thank you for ending on that note. We appreciate you. That was our interview with Dr. Alma Zaragoza-Petty, co-founder of the Prickly Pear Collective. Ben, what are some of your takeaways from that conversation? You know, I just really appreciated the energy and experience that Alma brings into that topic. And honestly, my biggest takeaway was that it doesn't have to be extremely difficult to create trauma-informed faith-based communities, right? Like some of these things are as simple as just becoming more aware of our own internal patterns being more willing to, as leaders to name our prickly sides or our brokenness, depending upon how you want to phrase that, and then trying to hold space for other people to bring those parts of themselves as well. So you don't need a PhD in psychology to do this effectively, right? But it does take some intention. And that I think was like the most encouraging takeaway for me. How about you? Well, one of the things that I appreciated that we actually even joked a little about after the recording was that so many of the things that their organization is based on are things that just seem to be transparently simple in their Christian origins, that she talked about wanting to bring eternity here. And you think of the Christian tradition of the Lord's Prayer, where it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, meaning that we want the kingdom to come down. It's not necessarily about waiting to go to the kingdom, but it being here. Also, as she talked about leadership and who they are forced to or choose to spend their time with and maybe missing those on the margins, and how the entire Christian tradition of the life of Jesus and the Christian New Testament scriptures point to Jesus seeking those out who are in trouble, who were the ones who were you know, still involved in problematic kinds of situations or morality, and that's who he looked for. And so it was just so interesting to hear how their community, and I don't even think she was trying to make those points, but just out of the very nature of who they are, they are embodying the best of what it means to follow the Christian New Testament scriptures and the and the example of Jesus. Yeah, and this idea, uh, their mission, right, of ending with hope and ending with healing, I think is really beautifully tied in to both the ministry of Jesus 
and to what many of us would desire for our daily lives and for our communities, right? We always want to end with hope and end with healing. And so I love that she named that explicitly and returned to it a couple of times throughout the interview. And I think that's something that we can all learn from, you know, you know this as well as I do, Matt, that when we're in the midst of our own prickliness, when we're in the midst of our own pain, when we're unpacking and, and doing the hard work of healing sometimes, it can be difficult to find that hope and it can be difficult to end there. Um, and so to have that as as a foundation for what community can look like, it means that no matter what you're bringing into the space, no matter who you want to complain about, no matter what brokenness is existing in your congregation or in your family, that you can always return to hope and healing at the end of it. And I think that's beautiful. We don't have to be whole to heal or to find hope. And, and I love that. Yeah, and also the flip side of that, I think from the faith traditions that I've been a part of, and I think she alluded to this a little bit, that there are some traditions that almost want to jump too quickly to the perfection and hope side of things to where they skip over how hard life is. In fact, I vividly remember as I was going through some of my own personal healing, and as you alluded to with therapy, there can come great difficulty, and it's not fun, and it's not easy. And I remember attending a Good Friday service where we're supposed to be reflecting on sinfulness and, you know, the day of the crucifixion and the darkness of the grave. But the music in that worship service was incredibly bright and happy and upbeat. And it was jarring to me because that wasn't where I was. And it made me reflect on my experiences of the Christian worship of which I had been a part, that there didn't ever really seem to be much room for brokenness, for lament, for darkness. Of course, according to the theology of the Christian faith, it ends well, but it's hard in the middle, and it seems like we want to jump directly to the hope and pass over the difficulty, when really we need to sit in the difficulty sometimes because that's where people in the congregation are. Maybe they've just lost a child or lost a pregnancy, or maybe they've gone through something really traumatic or difficult in a relationship, and they're just not in a space where they can joyfully sing praise, but rather just need to focus on, you know, I'm I'm really hurting right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's often overlooked about that set of scripture, that Good Friday to Easter Sunday in the Christian tradition, you know, is that we celebrate and observe it already knowing the end. But if we're reading the text, the characters in the text did not know Easter Sunday was coming. They had no clue. They were just in the midst of their pain. And I think we can take a page from their book and just be in the darkness with people for a little while. And to your point, that's critical to the human experience and critical to feeling affirmed and to feeling alone. Alma ended with this beautiful reminder that you are not alone, that we are not alone. We don't have to heal alone. And one of the simplest ways to help communicate that to someone else is just by being in the darkness with them and holding on to them just enough so that it doesn't swallow either of you, but that you're not rushing to find the light and the hope either. It will come. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So we hope that you got as much out of the interview with Dr. Alma Zaragoza Petty as we did and enjoyed the wisdom and the compassion that she brought. So next up, we're going to talk about resources. Welcome back to the resource segment where we share resources about the topic from the podcast. And Ben, what have you got for us today? 
Yeah, the first resource that I want to talk about is one that Alma highlighted, and it is an organization called Latinx Parenting. This is an organization designed to promote concepts of nonviolent parenting to families. Now, it's specifically focused on the Latinx community, as its name implies. But as I have found, the tools and tips that they offer are applicable to any family, any parent everywhere. And so if you want to learn more about what it means to practice some of these trauma-informed principles in your home, in with your family, or if you're a parent with your children, I just encourage following them on Instagram. They post different kinds content each and every day to their story and to their feed. And they also have workshops that you can sign up for so you can learn from others. One of the recent series they just did is a brown fatherhood series in which they had men of color come in who are fathers and they discussed what it meant to do nonviolent parenting from the perspective of fathers of color. And so you just get really unique content that I don't know you can find many other places. So I just want to pitch them to start out with here. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Ben. And just a reminder that congregations can be places of really important resource curation. So a lot of the resources that we talk about, if they are specifically for families or individuals, you might just want to think about how you would work that into your congregation, that you do a series for a select group of people, or even maybe for the whole congregation, and find a way to get the book or get the videos into their hands, or if there are articles, and just finding a way to resource your congregation as individuals to help them be healthier in how they do different aspects of life. Absolutely. And I'll just throw out two more quick resources. One, I think we've already touched on in an earlier podcast. I want to say it was the podcast we did with Dr. Hillary McBride. And it's The Body Keeps the Score, that book. So if you missed it, it's an excellent book. We have the link on our CRG. But this is a book that really does a deep dive from a psychological perspective about what happens in your brain when you experience trauma and when you experience it over a prolonged period of time versus a short moment. Um, It really helped me personally just understand myself a little bit better. And so if you're clergy or a lay leader wanting to understand maybe the people in your community, wanting to understand what it means to just have this context of trauma uh, already built into your leadership. The book is a great deep dive. It can be a bit dense academically at times, but you know if you can kind of work your way through that, there's some really meaty content in there that I think can help shape your leadership and the way you build and maintain relationships as a community. The final thing I think I want to bring is another resource from our CRG a really short article called What Does It Mean for a Ministry to be Trauma-Informed? And this is an article written by a Chaplain Chris Hagee in 2016. And again, it's a short article that just gives an overview of trauma-informed organizations. And Chaplain Chris offers six key principles for ministries to adopt in order to help improve their trauma awareness. And so check that out. It's on our CRG and the link is in the episode notes as well. What do you got for us, Matt? Yeah, so I've got a resource called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. It's actually a website, and the website is emotionallyhealthy.org. And again, we'll have that in the show notes on our CRG list. But this is a gentleman by the name of Pete Scazzaro, and he's written a number of books on this topic, and it has to do with just being emotionally healthy alongside your spirituality. And especially those congregations of a more conservative background, I think, would find this to be something that is very biblically informed and something that would fit well into their congregational culture. Not that these others wouldn't, but this one more specifically, I think, if you're a more conservative congregation, it might resonate a little more with the way that Pete goes about dealing with emotionally healthy spirituality. It's important to have those in there. We recognize our listenership represents a broad swath uh, of society and of even faith-based individuals, and so we try to ensure that we have resources that are going to speak to each of the various communities that we know are listening. That way, everyone can get something out of it. 
Yeah, that's one of the things that we try to do with the CRG, shameless plug, the CRG.org. We try to put a spectrum of resources. So, of course, we serve congregations of all different faith traditions and backgrounds, ways of viewing scripture. Yeah, we're happy to have a conversation with you over chat and customize resources for you or help you think about resourcing in a different way. And those of you who are in Indiana, you can, of course, reach out to one of our offices and talk with a consultant, again, generously funded by the Lilly Endowment. So that's a free service where we can help you find other resources and information. Absolutely. And there were a few other resources Alma either mentioned or that we thought were applicable, and you can find those in the show notes. We really appreciated you joining us today. Uh, Matt and I enjoyed the conversation with Alma, and we hope that you found it meaningful as well. As Matt alluded to, there are a multitude of ways that you can connect with us. And one of those is by following us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us at the centerforcongregations.org. We also hope you will go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Again, the five-star rating is important because that's the quickest way for new listeners to find us. And so if you appreciate this content and think we're amazing, which I mean, why wouldn't you? Please, please check us out. Leave us a five-star rating and review. Yeah, we really appreciate our podcast engineer, Jaden Lee. Jaden does a great job of cutting out all of our verbal tics and making us sound amazing. We're also grateful for the generous funding of the Lilly Endowment that allows us to do our work. And as always, we can be reached at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. That is the email address for this podcast. And so if you have questions or comments or you want to even recommend a guest, leave us some feedback, please use that. Send us an email. We get kind of lonely sometimes. So it'd be great just to hear from you all and to get some listener engagement. And I understand the temptation because I'm a podcast listener too, and they throw out an email address and I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Like they're going to be the ones to read it. No, legit. If you send us an email... There will be a notification in the physical location where I'm sitting, and I will see that email, and I will be really happy. And I will probably respond immediately because I'll be so excited that someone actually emailed the podcast email address. So please reach out. We genuinely would love to hear from you. We are not celebrities, despite the fact that you may be listening to us on your phone. You have no idea how easy it is to do a podcast these days. Super easy. Super easy. Suggestions, resources, anything that you want to say, we would love to hear from you. So once again, thank you all so much for joining us today and for being with us on this journey. We hope to continue to provide meaningful resources and knowledge that help you build the communities that you want to create and curate each and every day. Until next time, I'm Ben Tapper. And I'm Matt Burke.